0: 1 Samuel 15, one through nine. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tilaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. well, if we thought that things got spicy with Saul's <laughs> rash vow, we have moved on to the... Right, the, deeper waters. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is where things are starting to really reach a pinnacle for Saul. And so we we see this battle where the Lord calls for a total decimation of um, Amalek. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the biggest elephant in the room right up front off the bat is this command, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, and you know this is one of those parts where the intentions and thoughts of god don't fully make sense to us at first and especially because we know that god is the author of life that he's you know the defender of the mm-hmm. powerless and mm-hmm. and that's what the Bible emphasizes far more in, you know, the Old Testament, the Psalms, the New Testament, is this idea of God as defender of the defenseless and, you know, overwhelmingly and perfectly just. And this doesn't really seem just to us, you know? Yeah. And so, Jennifer, what, you know, just as we approach this, what kind of comes to mind in terms of, this amalekite decimation
0: yeah no i think this is great i love that you started that like listing all of those um attributes of god and i think this is whenever we come up against things that are hard in scripture and don't make Mm -hmm. sense to us that you should remember this like um principle of hermeneutics as we call it like how you're going to don't bring yourself and your thoughts to these like you need to start with who God is, Mm -hmm. um, what he has done, his wonderful works, his sovereignty, his goodness, and recognize that if this is what God has done, there has to be something in it that's right and just. And if I'm resisting it, that is just evidence of sin and rebellion in my own heart or just my human limits to not immediately jump to an an explanation that makes sense to me. But the Bible also gives us, you know, we have context for this. So we're told about Amalek, and um, this is a character that we have seen previously in Scripture early, early on in Genesis. He's actually the grandson of Esau. So that sets mm-hmm. us up right now that he is descended from an enemy of God. Esau, yeah. you know, uh, rejected him. So his descendants are referred to as the Amalekites, and they have a long history of violence towards God's people, um, mm-hmm. and the thing that we see referenced in this passage about how they opposed them when they came up out of Exodus, that's in Exodus 17, 8 through 16, and um, they basically tried, you know, were not helping their their brothers and sisters, really, you know, like their, their relatives. Mm-hmm. Um, they were opposing and fighting them um, and would not allow them to pass, so the Um, Moses, when he is now the leader of the people and is speaking to them, God actually said to Moses to write down this promise in Exodus 17, 14, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, Wow, which is terrifying, but also shows us the penalty of rejecting Mm -hmm. God and his means of salvation. I mean, that's the thing. It wasn't just a A fight of these people my land defending God had said these were the people that he had made the promise of how he was going to bring salvation to the world is through these people of Israel and so they weren't just opposing the people they were opposing God and his plan of salvation so even four decades later um, when Israel entered the promised land Moses reminded them again remember Amalek what he did to you um, and when you came out of Egypt and he remembered he reminded them of what god said so here we are hundreds of years later and this is the moment when god has decided it is time to um keep my promise and blot out these people yeah so that gives us context Mm -hmm. like these people have always been violent and um you know why why these people this isn't random but also i think we shouldn't like try to explain though away the death the, the the wages of sin is death mm-hmm. um that god is just like you said and he has the right to kill anyone yeah. on this planet like none of us stands um before god in any way other than in the posture of an offender
1: yeah absolutely well i you know i as you were saying that i was just thinking of this you know god kind of gives his his bio in Exodus 34, mm. uh, 6 and 7. And it, it's where, you know, it's this famous uh, Moses and God moment on Sinai where Moses asks God to show, show me your glory. And this mm-hmm. is kind of the moment. Mm-hmm. And this is where God speaks about who he is. He's, he It says, this is starting in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Hmm. So, you know, we have this this sort of paradoxical seeming understanding of God even here where God is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love, pardoning sin and transgression, Mm -hmm. but also calling sin and transgression to account. And this is where, you know, we have to do a little worldview check of like in the West, we very much view everybody's, Successes and failures as like just them, you know, Mm -hmm. not their family, you know, maybe their spouse, but just them. And in, you know, more traditional like Eastern or Middle Eastern culture, sin and shame was like a contagious thing that spread through society, it Mm -hmm. spread through bloodlines. And so we have to acknowledge there, at least, that in God's system of justice, there, you know he he encapsulates both of those things and we see both in in the scriptures there are scriptures where god talks about that when somebody sins against the lord that's not on his family that's on that person particularly Mm -hmm. and so god you know, in that sense, that like lines up with our sort of Western view of sin and wrongdoing. But then we have these moments where sin and shame and scandal has infected an entire, you know, demographic or mm-hmm. family. You know, I think of the story of Achan who steals the gold from Jericho and his family is killed with him. Mm-hmm. And, and that just doesn't really line up with how we think. And we just have to understand that. And, and I will make a quick side note of, I think from an apologetic standpoint, one of the things that is really compelling to me about the Bible is that we are not presented with a God who fits into one philosophical box, mm. you know, but who actually is a mystery and, and confounds human logic. and And so I think even within, as we like wrestle through this and think about this, it's also you know, an image of a God who is not made in our image.
0: Right. Yes. Definitely. And
1: that that is just a compelling thing for me to think about when kind of wrestling through these, you know, theological things that are really hard to reconcile. Right. And before we move on, I do just want to make a, a quick little plug like, This is a very tricky thing. I don't have this, you know, I I can't nearly begin to understand or explain like God's justice system regarding, you know, killing people, groups and stuff. Mm -hmm. There are people who also can't do it, but can do a better job of it. And um, one good resource is uh, Trevin Wax has an article. You can look this up. It's called personal reflections on the Canaanite conquest. Basically, it he, it's he's distilling this book called Show Them No Mercy God in the Canaanite Genocide and it's this book that is written by four theologians that have differing views on it and he kind of digests and counterbalances and works through those different theological points and it's really helpful for thinking about this and then you mentioned one Jennifer called uh, Yeah it,
0: Michael Kruger has an article yeah. called Is God Guilty of Genocide yeah. um the Gospel Coalition And both of these writers, both of these articles deal with the um, killing of the Canaanites, which we see in Deuteronomy. But same principles apply here with um, God exacting his justice uh, judgment on the Amalekites. But I agree. I mean, this this is not something you want to gloss over and think about. And I will say just one takeaway for me is to recognize that I am deserving of death. There is no like my there's I have no nothing to stand on before God other than um, the work of his son on the cross. And that actually makes your salvation even sweeter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's the grace and the salvation is so sweet when we realize that we all deserve death.
1: Yeah. And that's such a good word because the, the basic understanding that we're oftentimes coming from when we like really wrestle with things like this is like, I don't deserve to die. Like we don't deserve to die. Yeah. And, you know, there, like you said, like the wages of sin is death. Right. And, and so that's just a great thing to think through. And, you know, we're getting a little long, but I do want to talk through the yeah. end of where well, that
0: kind of. Yeah, that kind of sets up the end. Like, yeah. I think we can probably cover it just in that. Saul, this is one thing that we're seeing in Saul is his pride that mm. he is not humble before the yeah. Lord um and he struggles and he appears to prepare to obey the lord in the beginning of this section and yet we see where he and i think it's it's instructive that he says that Saul and the people spared Agag this was this was Saul mm. leading his people yeah. in disobedience to the word of the lord that Samuel had told him very specifically yeah here you need to listen to this word um, and you are the means that God is using to fulfill his promise of judgment mm-hmm. here, basically, is what he was saying. And and Saul again looks to his own understanding. Yeah. He's at the center of the narrative. He saves. And I think we don't we we'll get to this tomorrow, most likely, but we're not really hearing. I mean, we know he's disobeying, but it's also interesting that he saves the best of the sheep mm-hmm. and the oxen, the oxen. So you feel like there's something in there and that was good and would not utterly destroy them and destroyed what was despised and worthless. So again, he's looking to his own judgment. He's setting himself up as the judge, which is terrifying. There's only one judge of all the earth.
1: We have in this passage contrasting justice systems, the justice of God and the justice of man. And I think a really, really good question to ask, and I, I find that I have to ask myself this an embarrassing amount of times, but... It, it, it's the question of do I obey God to the point, up until the point where it doesn't make sense anymore? Mm. And I think that that is a rampant theology, you know, false theology in, you know, churches. And, and I'm afraid that churches like Christ's covenant and, and, you know, our sort of Christian culture where we have things pretty comfortably is like, are we content to walk in obedience to God? so long as it, like, fits within our logic, you know? Yeah. And and that's really where, like, all these streams of unhealthy uh, Christianity come from mm-hmm. is people taking the laws and commandments of God that fit within their logic and then, you know, discarding the parts mm-hmm. that don't fit within it. And that's mm-hmm. where, that's where like hyper progressive Christianity comes from. And that's where like alt-right, uh, you mm-hmm. know, Christian nationalism comes from is mm-hmm. taking the parts that make sense, discarding the parts that don't fit Geology, in the ideology. Yeah. Yeah. And that, as is, we're going to see is what leads to Paul's rejection. Yeah.
0: That's a good word. There's a lot to think
1: about. It's a lot to think about. <laughs> so go do some homework, <laughs> but we'll see you tomorrow. Um,